1: Hi, my name is Roland Clark and I'm here today on the New Books Network talking to Daniel Scarborough who he's an associate professor of Russian history and religion at Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan. His interests include the religious and intellectual history of late Imperial Russia, the local history of of Moscow and Ver, and more recently Christianity in Central Asia.
2: Hi Roland, thanks a lot for inviting me and giving me the chance to talk about my book.
1: Uh, Daniel, can you tell us a bit about priests in mid nineteenth century Russia? If I was a village priest in a rural area, where would my income come from? Um, what would I do from day to day?
2: Sure. So yeah, the the uh, the parish priests are the the focus of my book, and uh, I uh, I tried to learn as much as I could, and over the course of my research about their economic situation and how that related uh, to to what how they interacted with society. So in answer to the first part of your question, where would their income come from? Uh, most clergy, including rural clergy in the Russian Empire, I, I should say Orthodox clergy, uh, representatives of the official religion of, of the, uh, the Russian Empire, most of them received some kind of state subsidy. Um those who were operating in uh, dioceses uh, with substantial um, competition from Catholics let's say or or perhaps uh, uh, Protestants would receive larger subsidies just to give them a little boost um, but the the diocese that I look at the central Diocese of Moscow and Tver, um, they, they received a subsidy from the state that was never enough to support them and their usually large families. Um, so another source of income was the land that they were given. Uh, it wasn't their property. It was, uh, it was attached to their parish. And so the idea was for them to farm along with the peasants who they uh, performed religious services for. Um, and many of them did, but uh, over the course of the 19th century, uh, many of them began to lease that, that land out and basically allow peasants, uh, farmers to, uh, to farm that land and pay them a fee for it. The most important source of income for rural clergy were the voluntary uh, contributions that their, their parishioners would give them for their religious services. So what they would collect in church, what they would get when they performed a funeral or a marriage or something. Uh, that was really uh, how they survived. And so uh, um, an important point that I try to make in the book is that the, the Orthodox clergy, despite being um, members of the official church, were, uh, were dependent on the people. They were more beholden to the, the common people than they were to the state in a material sense, and that's kind of unique if you look at state clergy uh, in the context of Europe. Uh, Most of them them received state salaries that that supported them entirely. As for the second part of your question, um, the primary function of the clergy was, of course, to perform the liturgy, to perform rites, sacred rites, other religious services. They also served the state and society as what I call a quasi-civil service. And this is what, uh, beginning with Peter the Great, uh, this is what the, the state had in mind when they, uh, when they funded seminaries for clergy. The seminary was intended to train future priests, not only in theology and liturgical practice, but also in literacy, math, History, languages, so so that they could uh, serve as um, as useful uh, civil servants, keeping track, uh, keeping records of the population, uh, keeping records of of news events, spreading literacy. They would monitor sanitation, making sure that, that bodies were buried at at a sufficient depth. Um, they would communicate to the people on behalf of the state. So most peasants, for example, learned about the abolition of serfdom in 1861 from their parish priests. And finally, and this is the real focus of my book, priests increasingly organized charity, mutual aid, voluntary associations for their parishioners. And they did so more and more independently of state guidance. And I argue that this grew out of their civil service uh, component of their, their profession, uh, but also as a result of, of their material dependence on the parishioners. They, they depended on the laity for their own uh, sustenance, and so they wanted to support them. They wanted to help them uh, uh, manage, manage poverty, manage illiteracy, the problems that afflicted uh, the population of late imperial Russia, and of course, uh, this work was also rooted in the uh, traditional value of philanthropy, and so this, what I call the pastoral movement, this movement on the part of the the clergy to uh, to help the uh, to help their parishioners materially as well as in a traditional um, liturgical sense. Uh, that's the real focus of my book.
1: Um. So you talk about, in the book, that by the late 19th century, clerical networks and voluntary associations, they had become a way for priests to help the poor and destitute lay people, um, as well as helping priests. Can you tell us a bit how this played out in response to the massive famine of 1892, which killed about 400,000 people from starvation? Sure, sure. So,
2: um, yeah. As, as you say, the, uh, the, the clergy um, had, had these voluntary associations that the state encouraged them to form, or I should say tolerated uh, them to, to form. That, the first official one that I could find was in 1823. So they allowed them to form this uh, mutual aid association on the level of the diocese, and I should say there are 67 dioceses in the Russian Empire, these usually coincided with the uh, governorships, right? So on the level of the diocese, um, the clergy were able to form this, what was called a trusteeship, a papichitelstva, for uh, poor members of the clerical estate. Uh, The the clergy formed one of the estates of, of Russian society. That included the nobility, the peasantry, the merchantry, uh, the the, so the middle class or the, the city dwellers the Mishanstva and so the clergy were one of these and in the, co- in the context of their estate they were able to form this association the reason for that is, is that uh, the, so the clerical estate included not just priests not just the lower clergy the, the deacons and the sacristans it also included their wives and their adult uh, children. So it was a fairly um, large group of people, even though it was a small percentage of the overall population. And if a priest died, he would leave behind a widow, he would leave behind orphans, and who would take care of them? Uh, if the extended family couldn't take care of them, uh, they needed some other way to, uh, to manage um, this potentially uh, impoverished population. And so that's what this first... Um, association was for. Um, over the course of the 19th century, these kinds of associations multiplied uh, to address various various needs, um, and they became increasingly independent of the state. Alison Smith talks about this in her book For the Common Good and Their Own Well-Being. Alison Smith talks about uh, other estate organizations, how um, how the the state had come to rely on the capacity of society to perform social services for itself. And so because it needed um, these associations to to take care of their own members, it uh, gradually tolerated more and more independence on, on the part of these estate associations. So the nobility had their estate organizations uh, the the peasants did but the peasants were quite fragmented and didn't have uh, didn't have a great deal of of reach uh, the clergy had their estates had their associations that were unique in a couple of ways number one they were very large because the the clergy were uh, they had a presence throughout the hinterland and also they had their their presence in the diocesan capital so uh, moscow city is the is the capital of the Diocese of Moscow governorship, which was a fairly large territory. Uh, So these associations, these networks, as I call them, were quite extensive, arguably the most extensive in the empire. And number two, the estate associations or networks of the clergy were unique in, in, in the sense that they served not only their own estate, but also facilitated the the pastoral work of the clergy. In other words, the clergy ended up using these organizations to serve the rest of society, uh, primarily their parishioners, uh, but but ultimately even even beyond the confines of the parish. So you asked about the the big famine in 1891-92, and that's the first really large-scale coordinated effort that I saw to use the associations of the parish clergy to, uh, to help society at large. And so, for example, one of the things they did was they, uh, they took some of that, those resources that had been collected in those uh, mutual aid societies for the clergy that I mentioned, the trusteeship for poor clergy, and they transferred some of those, uh, some of those funds to relieve uh, famine victims. Uh, so that's that's one of the things they did. Uh, there is also, as, as I mentioned earlier, the civil service function of the clergy. So the clergy were a major resource to the state. Um, they were very often, the, the parish priest and his staff were very often the only literate people in a particular village, or some of the, 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 the few literate people. And so they were they were good at using their networks to collect and spread both both resources and information. So one of the challenges the state had in addressing the famine was not really knowing who was starving and who could help them. And so the the parish clergy could say this community is okay, this community is in real trouble, and they could use their networks to solicit aid and transfer that aid uh, from uh, parts of the the empire that were kind of doing okay to to other parts along the the in Samara, for example, uh, where people were really starving. Uh, so again, there is that uh, civil service function combined with the the willingness of of the parish clergy to actually help the laity because of their pastoral mission uh, and and simply because of the the need to uh, Uh, to ensure that that the peasantry, who was their main source of support, um, could continue to to support them.
1: So beyond famines and helping starving people, uh, were these networks good for mobilizing around other issues as well? Uh, For example, how did the priests respond when war breaks out with Japan in 1904?
2: Right. So the, the subtitle of my book is Famine, War and Revolution. So uh, I I focus on um, uh, I focus on all three of those things. The war in Japan, in particular, um, is is an example of the what I s- claim in my book is kind of a divergence of the civil service function of the clergy and their uh, pastoral uh, charitable function. So the the response in general to the war with Japan was much less enthusiastic uh, than, than the sort of grassroots response to other problems like the famine and like uh, World War I later. And that's because the, the war was so unpopular. And so what I found in, in the archival records of, of this response is that, again, the clergy were serving as an important source of information. The Ministry of War uh, sent out this request through the synod, okay, the synod is the governing body uh, for the church. It sent out this request, please ask all of the priests to give us information on where we can evacuate wounded soldiers. Where can we find um, clinics, hospitals, uh, simply places to, uh, to house them as we're moving them away from the theater of war? And so the, the response here was very, uh, very dutiful. Uh, there are detailed uh, responses to this to these questions that were sent out, but as far as um, providing uh, providing resources and buildings donations to support the military uh, that was that was not a very enthusiastic response um, in in uh, during the war with japan and I think what that shows is that uh, there was a real voluntary component to what the clergy were doing? Um, the the state could not force them to uh, to help famine victims. Uh, they couldn't force them to respond to these uh, uh, to these humanitarian crises. So when they did, it was really at their initiative, often in 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 uh, cooperation with the state.
1: So. The clergy, they're working for the state and they're closely associated with the state, but at the same time they're kind of independent. So, what happens during the 1905 revolution? Did the revolution strengthen clerical networks or weaken them?
2: So, it definitely strengthened the networks. Um, first of all, because so, uh, as I believe I mentioned earlier, the um, the the state both needed society to organize associations to help to help its own members but it was also suspicious anytime this happened um, so it would say okay you have permission to form this association for this specific purpose uh, don't do anything else beyond that uh, and this applied to the clergy as well they were also suspicious of the clergy um, so Great! You can form this uh, this organization if you want to provide aid, for example, to to famine victims. But don't you dare talk about politics, or don't talk about anything other than what you've set out to do in in your in your charter. For example, ironically, uh, what you see in 1905 is the synod calling upon the clergy uh, form more associations, please. Uh, form pastoral councils, um, and, and that's because they, they thought that the clergy would uh, combat this revolutionary movement, uh, which it did, to, to what extent it, it could. It uh, tried to encourage the population not to engage in violent uh, violent attacks, on certainly not on churches, which is one thing that was happening, uh, driven by uh, Marxist revolutionaries, but uh, not not on the state either. So so one, one, uh, one component of the response to 1905 was a granting of even greater freedom to the clergy. So the clerical networks uh, ended up having a lot more leeway than a lot of other uh, social networks in the empire. Another result of the 1905 revolution. I should say one one component of the revolution was a widespread boycott of payments to village priests. This is one of the um, acts of protest that broke out across much of the empire. Uh, A lot of the, the peasants were tired of being saddled with the majority of the burden of supporting the clergy and their families. Uh, and and the seminaries. And so they said, okay, we're not going to pay you any more. We're going to pay you a minimal amount. This is part of our uh, revolutionary protest. I think this also strengthened the networks, or at least it, com- it contributed to what I call the pastoral movement, because it, it put more pressure on the clergy to demonstrate that the church and its wealth was not just for the benefit of the clerical estate, not just for the benefit of the institutional church, but uh, needed to benefit the whole of society. And so, yeah, the, the response to 1905 um, definitely furthered uh, what I'm calling the pastoral movement and I think uh, made, made the uh, pastoral networks of the, of the clergy more robust.
1: So you mentioned in the book that the tensions between the lower clergy and the state that come to the surface during the 1905 revolution are particularly visible in the seminaries. Um, And as a teacher, I'm terrified by the stories about bombings and strikes. And there's one story from 1930 when seminary students try to ambush and shoot their bishop because he introduces stricter rules about their exams. Um, Why do you think seminary students were particularly likely to protest? What sorts of people become seminary students?
2: Uh, Okay, so um, in answer to your last question, the seminaries were um, educational institutions specifically for the sons of clergymen. So they were for the clerical estate. Uh, That's how they were planned all the way back uh, to Peter the Great, 1721, when he decreed that they should be established in every diocese. So if you're the son of a priest or of a deacon or of a sacristan, you attend seminary for free. Um, And most of these uh, sons of clergymen could not afford to attend a secular school. Uh, If you're a member of another state and you really want want your son to become a priest, you can pay a small fee uh, for him to attend the seminary. That does not happen very often. And the seminary is also accepted orphans. Uh, So... Uh, a lot of the orphans from uh, soldiers fighting in Japan, for example, uh, were accepted into the seminaries. Um, so that's who was attending it. Why were they violent? What was all this violence about? I think part of it was a symptom of the poverty that you saw in the seminaries. They were they were rough places. They were understaffed. So you have younger students kind of being at the mercy of older students. You have uh you have the teachers being, uh, being rough to kind of control these students. Um, the, the conditions weren't always great. Uh, uh, students, if they didn't live in dormitories, they would live in rough parts of town. So violence was already there, and it became politicized. And uh, this is one of the things that uh, Lori Manchester mentions in her book on the, uh, the children of priests and their role in the revolutionary movement and their their role in forming the Russian intelligentsia. So a lot of these revolutionaries uh, came out of the seminaries like Chernyshevsky and most most famously Stalin. Um, My book focuses on a specific component of the seminarian movement in the mostly the early 20th century that expressed the priorities of the clerical estate. It wasn't just uh, part of the revolutionary movement. So in particular, some of these seminarians were calling for things that, that the, the rest of the clergy could agree with. Like they wanted to relax estate boundaries. They wanted the, the seminary to be a more open institution for anyone who wanted to, uh, to gain this religious education. And they didn't want to be forced into the priesthood when they came out, they wanted the, the freedom to, to do something else, if they wanted. Um, they did not want their libraries to be censored. So most seminaries had uh, these secret libraries where they would read things like anything from uh, Karl Marx to Tolstoy's um, uh, Christian anarchism, for example. Um, and they wanted, uh, they wanted the, the pedagogical council that governed the seminaries to be open to more participation uh, from clerical families and the diocese. so these were all things that the clergy could agree with, and they petitioned for these things, and the clergy sort of uh, supported them cautiously with their own petitions to the synod, and this this really broke out in in as part of the 1905 revolution, um, and what what I noted is that after uh, after the the 1905 revolution kind of subsided because of a lot of the concessions on the part of the government um, in particular Konstantin Pabedonostsev, who was the over procurator of the holy synod so he was the um, he was a sort of notoriously uh, reactionary um, uh, lay official kind of bureaucrat who oversaw the Holy Synod and had quite a bit of influence in the government, once he was forced to resign as a result of the revolution, suddenly the seminaries start expanding their libraries. They start getting books about uh, about socialism, about some of the more controversial um, uh, uh, literature that, that was being written about, about religion and about society at that time. Um, but... Also, what I, what I discuss in the book is how the seminarian movement ultimately uh, became alienated from, from the rest of the clergy. So this kind of uh, alliance between radical seminarians and the, the clergy was derailed because a lot of these uh, seminarians became radicalized. They became Marxists or they, they became atheists. And so you, you can't really al- allow yourself... Uh, with the parish clergy, if you're claiming there is no God. And so there was the, there was the third seminary in Congress was in uh, 1906, and that was quite explicitly Marxist. And that, so that kind of ended this um, this alliance that I described where, where this radical seminarian movement was, in fact, expressing some of the grievances of the parish clergy.
1: Um, and once they graduate... One way that seminary graduates made money was to teach in parish schools. I was surprised to read that parish schools weren't always set up for the, by the church. Um, who did set them up and who funded them? If it wasn't the Orthodox Church,
2: uh, well, the the church it, it was kind of like the way that the parish clergy were funded themselves. So the 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 government the the, the the synod the church synod um, did receive funding from the state to subsidize. These parish schools, but it was never enough to really make them effective, and so they were, uh, they were reliant on voluntary contributions. At the early stages of the um, the movement to set up uh, primary schools throughout the empire, uh, there was a lot of collaboration between the clergy and the zemstva. So the the zemstva was a local government body that was established in. Uh, during the Great Reforms, around the same time that the peasants were emancipated, so the Zemstvo was established in 1864, and these were like local, uh, democratically elected bodies uh, that that dealt with local issues like roads, uh, social services, and schools. And so early on, uh, the clergy and the Zemstvo were working together uh, quite closely to establish uh, primary education, particularly in Tver, which is one of the places I focus on in the book. Um, later on, and this is something that Ben Ekloff discusses in his book on peasant schools, later on there's a kind of feud between the liberals uh, who see the, the Zemstva as their, uh, their chance to, um, to spread democracy in Russia, and they kind of oppose uh, the church's uh, influence in primary education, so there's a kind of uh, dispute uh, rivalry between the Zemstva schools and the parish schools. Uh, and so they kind of part ways. And the, the Zemstva schools become more important in the, uh, the, the urban centers, I should say. I think what ends up happening is that the parish schools end up serving, um, serving the popula- population in more remote areas. Um, and they, as I said, they continue to rely on uh, voluntary contributions. And so uh, w- one of the things that I found is that of all of the mutual aid initiatives organized by the parish clergy, the, uh, the parish schools were one of the more successful. So they did for a while um, uh, really uh, attract a lot of interest and uh, encourage the peasants to uh, to fund these institutions. And they became not just for uh, uh, educating the children of peasants, they also became, they would run all kinds of things like adult literacy programs. Um, they would have classes for various crafts. A lot of uh, peasants would would end up volunteering to teach people uh, various skills that they knew, carpentry or whatever, the, the parish schools would have, vegetable gardens, so they were real uh, community endeavors on, on the level of the parish.
1: Um, the other thing that, that I found interesting about these parish schools is that it wasn't only seminary graduates who taught in them, but also the wives and daughters of priests. What does that tell us about the role of women in the church in late imperial Russia?
2: Right, right. So so who was teaching in, in these parish schools? Um, there's the village priest priest was supposed to set it up but he doesn't really have time to teach in it full-time anyway uh, so a lot of the people who were teaching in it were uh, young seminary graduates who were going to become priests so this was kind of a kind of an internship for them and uh, but they were they were always a temporary um, a temporary workforce and so as you say the a very important um, uh, teaching force that ended up teaching in these schools were the daughters of priests so how did that come about um, uh, and also your, your question is what what does this say about women in the church in general so this this is a one thing that I talk about in my book I think that a lot more research uh, needs to be done on this because it's a really interesting uh, interesting question so liberal there were liberal Orthodox Christians who, discussed the role of women in the church. Um, Alexander Popkov is a good example who wrote a lot about uh, the parish as the fundamental unit of Russian civilization. And he advocated more active roles for women in the parish community. And so there was talk about this, but I think that the importance of clerical women for spreading primary education was more of a practical development that, was was in, independent of ideology. And it actually began uh, because some noble women decided to organize these schools to train the daughters of priests, basically to become good wives of priests. So they wanted them to be literate, but also pious and obedient. Um, and that's, that was the beginning of the spread of literacy it was the mid nineteenth century the spread of, of literacy on a large scale among the female members of the, um, of the clerical estate? So how did that really took off? Because the clergy themselves realized that if their daughters got this education, if they became literate, like if I'm a priest, and and my daughter now has an education, I can be confident that if I die, if she doesn't end up getting married, or if her husband dies, uh, she's not going to be completely destitute. She'll be able to teach. And what I I found records of women who did become destitute, basically. They were writing writing to the bishop saying, please, uh, um, I'm a widow, I'm an orphan, give me a, a position baking communion bread or something, something to allow me to support myself. The priests realized that if their if their daughters were literate, they could they could always have that to fall back on. They could always teach and so the the clergy started funding these schools in each diocese uh, just from with their own money, they would pool their money together. This is another of their uh, mutual aid endeavors uh, that I mentioned uh, where they they pooled their their resources to set up these schools. Uh, to educate their, their daughters. And so clerical women are becoming more and more literate. Uh, they're not going to become priests, and so uh, many of them end up finding jobs in parish schools and in Zemstva schools, um, and they, they become an important uh, force for the spread of, of literacy throughout the, uh, throughout the countryside in particular.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: you point out that there's constant tensions between priests and lay people in their parishes because when people give money to the church, it then becomes the property of the church and the locals have no way of controlling what's done with the money. Um, what were the different priorities for lay people and clergy? And how does this story play out?
2: Right. So this is, a, this is definitely a source of tension um, throughout the period that I examine uh, so what I found is that, that particularly peasants were much more concerned with the, the more traditional aspects of Orthodox observance. They wanted nice churches, they wanted icons, and they were willing to support their clergy. And so, so they would contribute in church, they would, they would give money uh, so that the priest and the deacon could, could live and could support their kids. But a lot of this money ends up going out of the parish and not directly benefiting the the immediate community of the parish. Uh, So they they go to things like the seminary. They go to things like the trusteeship for poor clergy and other diocesan institutions. And so as as the laity become more literate and more politically assertive, uh, they began to question why their money is is going off to support some seminary where the the the, the kids of the priests are apparently uh, reading radical literature and setting off bombs. Like, what does that have to do with with what I'm contributing in church? And so this tension is is what what pressured the clergy to try to convince the laity that these diocesan organizations are not just for the narrow interests of the clerical estate but they're being used to feed and educate the poor they're being used to um, uh, to relieve famine victims elsewhere and and this this there was this movement to try to convince the laity that these social initiatives charity mutual aid other kinds of social work those are also aspects of Orthodox observance and that that's the movement that I call, uh, the pastoral movement. Now, there was a, a kind of compromise here that, that began with the great reforms, and that was to give the laity their own associations. Uh, these were called parish trusteeships. And so uh, the, they were told, okay, you're going to give your money in church, and then we're going to set up this other association. The, the priest is going to be in charge of that, and you can contribute money to that as well and we'll use that money to benefit you and that had varying degrees of success but basically you can contribute that money to this parish organization and that's yours you have control over that and so you can you can do with that money uh, what you see fit you can you can use it for charity or you can use it to beautify the church uh, or, or whatever you see fit and the the, the character, of these parish trusteeships and their their, their relative success uh, varied a great deal from, from one diocese to another. Uh, so the dioceses that I focus on in the book, Moscow and Tver, two very large dioceses, had very successful parish trusteeships that engaged in a great deal of charity. Now, there was always this, this call to, why not just give the, the, the laity complete control over what they contribute in church and the fear was that if if the if the clergy did that if the clergy said okay um, the parish council is going to be in charge of of all the money that you contribute to religious life uh, then they would bankrupt the diocese they would say okay no more money for the seminary um, no more money for uh, for these larger uh, initiatives, uh, missionary work, or whatever, we want it all to stay in the parish, um, and so the diocese would be bankrupted, and the you know the 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 parish would have a large, beautiful church in every case, um, and so that they resisted that for a long time. But what I found was that over the course of the nineteenth and, and the early twentieth century, the 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 laity. Steadily gained more control, like more and more money is being transferred to the control of the laity uh, from from the funds that were being uh, contributed directly to the church and and which were uh, under the complete control of of the parish clergy. And so, all of this time, the priests are really trying to convince the uh, the laity uh, to continue to not to to neglect um, that aspect. Of church life, which is to uh, to to support the poor, including the, the clergy's own poor, their own widows and orphans, but but widows and orphans in general.
1: Um, so what happens when the First World War breaks out in 1914? Does that put a strain on clerical networks and priests' authority in the parishes, or is it like 1905 and it strengthens them?
2: Yeah, so... Um, <clears throat> The reaction to World War One is pretty remarkable throughout society. Uh, you see a real, a very robust response, uh, outpouring of patriotic sen- sentiment, not just in the church, but in in a lot of uh, uh, the zemstva, for example, the, all of these mm-hmm. um, these associations that are being formed, and a willingness to contribute money, products uh, to to help help the. The entire country, the entire empire, I should say, uh, to to weather this conflict, and so this applies to the church as well. Uh, it does a lot to help wounded soldiers uh, and to help people who are suffering on the um, on the home front. So there's a real contrast uh, between the church's response to World War One and their response to the war with Japan, um, but there's also a a bifurcation in this volunteerism so I just mentioned I just mentioned that there is a kind of divide between this the funding that is controlled by the clergy and by the church and the funding that is controlled by the laity themselves and so what I noticed is that what that what the clergy controlled was being contributed mostly to soldiers and directly to the military so the, the, the clergy were being, uh, were trying to help the war effort directly. Whereas the laity, if you look at these organizations that are controlled by the laity, the, the various parish councils and parish trusteeships, I noticed that they are contributing money more, more to the home front and more uh, specifically to their own communities. So to help the soldatki, for example, the, the wives of soldiers. And so as the war drags on and the regime starts to weaken, what this does is it causes the clergy to be more associated with the regime. Um, and so Laura Engelstein talks about this in her book uh, Slavophile Empire. She talks about this um, response to the war and she says something something like society mobilized but on behalf of a regime that was digging its own grave. And so Things like the the Union of Unions, like the Zemstva, and other other organizations were um, really trying, really contributing to uh, to the war effort, which was a lost cause, and to the regime, which was a lost cause, and that that applied to the church as well. Uh, so, in answer to your question, I think uh, ultimately uh, the war effort weakened uh, weakened the, the clerical networks. Um, At least it weakened the authority of the clergy within those networks, as I said, because it associated them uh, with the increasingly unpopular uh, czarist regime.
1: Um, So I just asked about 1914, but let's take a step back. Um, Because even before the war, parish priests had been getting involved in politics through the Dumas, which are set up after the 1905 revolution. One would assume that as representatives of the church, priests are always conservatives and opposed to social change. Is that right?
2: Uh, so that's what the regime thought would be the case. And uh, so that's why, uh, to begin with, you actually have priests who end up serving in the Duma, um, Russia's, the Russian Empire's first parliament on a national level. Uh, but in fact, as as I describe in the book, um, the the clerical deputies, the priests who are serving as basically MPs in the first two Dumas, are all either liberal or leftist. And actually, the the liberals were, at least the cadet party was fairly leftist um, in the first Duma. So uh, most of them were were formally or informally allied with the cadet or constitutional democratic party. Um, And so they they called for an end to the death penalty. They called for better social services for the poor. They were doing these things that really uh, shocked the regime and shocked the more conservative members of the, uh, the hierarchy in the church. And so, um, why was this? I don't think that this means that the majority of the clergy were necessarily liberal or left wing, but I think I think it's because the clergy were voting along with with lay people. So they were participating, they were running for office and voting uh, together with the general population. And so, the first two dumas in 1906 and 1907 elected. Uh, a lot of leftist candidates, and the um, uh, the the clerical candidates were some were among those. Um, the last two dumas were the result of electoral reform, which was designed to to create more conservative parliaments. And so uh, the way that this was handled for the clergy is that they were, uh, segregated into their own voting block, And that voting block was did not have secret voting. It did not have a secret ballot. They were very closely monitored and directly pressured to, um, to elect right, right-wing candidates. And this is something that uh, Argirius Pisiotis describes in his dissertation, Orthodoxy versus Autocracy. Uh, so we we we'll, we'll never really know what kind of candidates the, the clergy would have produced uh, if if you'd had free and fair elections within this clerical estate, would they have produced more left wing or more right wing candidates or, or, or deputies rather? Uh, we will never know that because uh, there there was never um, there were never free elections.
1: Okay, but what about the Black Hundreds? How many of the priests you came across in your research were supporters of the far right? So this is a topic that
2: I'm interested in learning more about. Um, I can say that uh, in Moscow and Tver, which, again, were the the, the places that I focused on, um, I did not see a lot of evidence of clerical involvement in Black Hundred organizations. These, these of course, were the... Um, the kind of grassroots, militantly anti-leftist, anti-Semitic organizations that engaged in street violence, and they openly courted the clergy. They encouraged priests to, uh, to come and bless what they were doing and participate in their rallies. And I would find evidence of these organizations expressing disappointment uh, that there were not more priests coming. Like, we invited the priests, why aren't they, why aren't they here? Um, and I, I don't, I mean, I can guess why that was the case. Maybe the clergy found them objectionable. But um, I do know that some of those right-wing clerical deputies who were sort of artificially installed in the third and fourth dumas were black hundredists. And I know that the black hundreds did have more clerical support in other parts of the empire, and that's something that I'm that I'm interested in doing more research on in the future.
1: Mm. Um, that's very interesting. So, if the church is divided politically even before the February Revolution broke out in 1917, how did that revolution impact the church? Did priests, parish priests, become revolutionaries? Were there conflicts between priests and bishops and archbishops? right so th- there is this so-called
2: this so-called revolution in the church that happens in 1917 and the the left wing of the the clergy does play a prominent role here but it's not necessarily a left wing movement it has a lot more to do with the conflict uh, between the low, the parish clergy and the hierarchy the bishops and and archbishops and metropolitans, then it has to do with the left and right wing uh, 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 spectrum of of politics. So, the system of of govern of church governance um, uh, under the, the the Russian Empire within the synodal system granted really almost unchecked power to the bishop. The bishop was like a almost a mini-autocrat in his diocese. He had had a lot of authority over the clergy, and that provoked a lot of resentment. And this this boiled over in 1917, just like so many other tensions in Russian society. And so what happens over the summer of 1917 is these uh, diocesan congresses of clergy and laity they convene in all the 67 dioceses of the Russian Empire, and many of them uh, attempted or, or managed to actually oust their bishop, uh, to convince their bishops to step down. Uh, so there's a, an excellent Russian language book on this topic written by Pavel Ragozny, and my, uh, my graduate mentor, Catherine Yevtohov, wrote a, an article about this. Of uh, the church's revolutionary mo- moment. Um, Ragozny in his book, points out that the church actually emerged from this revolutionary period intact, and it was arguably the only institution of Tsarist Russia to successfully reform itself rather than collapse. And so I attribute much of the credit for the, this, the church's survival. Of this revolutionary moment to the parish clergy because they adhered to canon law or the law of the church Um, meaning they did not just simply revolt against the authority of unpopular bishops but they pressured them to leave voluntarily they they almost never claimed that we need to have a, a Protestant revolution in the church they said, rather, we need more, more participation. Uh, we want unpopular bishops to go. We want, we want bishops to, uh, to listen to the, to the voice of the parish clergy and the voice of the laity. Um, and why? Why is that? I think there was a very practical reason because they knew that if they destroyed the authority of the bishops, they themselves would have no authority. Because the in in the Orthodox mm. in the Orthodox Church, of course, the bishop the bishops are the successors of the apostles of Christ. And the the parish priest derives his his office as as a priest from that authority, from that apostolic authority. And so they did not want to damage that or destroy that. Um, and that's why they were they were there was a, a this massive movement, but it was also cautious in a certain way. Um, now, you asked if there were revolutionary priests, and there absolutely were. Um, and uh, uh, there there was the so called um, renovationist movement, obnovlenchestvo, in the church, and these were priests who openly joined the Bolsheviks. And I've heard people kind of link that movement in 1917 to reform the church with those, um, with those so-called red priests. Uh, Rosloff wrote, wrote a book called The Red Priests. And the, it has to be emphasized that those priests that end up collaborating with the Bolsheviks were a French group, and they were the ones who were willing to, uh, to challenge canon law. They were the ones who were willing to completely overturn uh, the authority of the bishops, and so they—they they were not important. These these revolutionary bis- uh, priests until they received the support of Zinoviev. That's in 1919, uh, when you already have the Soviet regime in place, um, and they basically offer to collaborate, and with with the support of the new regime, they seize control. Of the church and uh, the church administration, but they were largely rejected by the Orthodox population. So, wherever you have one of these red clergymen, for example, uh, assuming the the title of bishop in a particular diocese, most people reject uh, reject that bishop. So that kind of confirms what I what I suspect that uh, most of the clergy realized in 1917 is that. We have to keep, we we want to reform the church, but we have to keep it together if we want to retain uh, the respect and the loyalty of the Orthodox population.
1: Mm, And that helps us think about um, different responses to 1917 much more generally too. Um, So finally, the story of how the synodal system collapses in 1917 and Tikhon is elected as Russian patriarch, this is fairly well known. Um, But in the book you argue that it was a result of a much broader sea change in church administration that had been brewing for quite some time. So this is a so what question for your book. What is knowing what we now know about pastoral activism, clerical associations, increasing lay involvement in the church, governance, how does that add to the story about the restoration of the Patriarchate in 1917?
2: (sighs) Right. So, uh, yeah, as I as I mentioned, as as Rogozny points out, is that it's it's kind of surprising that the church survived, uh, given all of the tensions in it, and given the fact that that so much was overturned in nineteen seventeen, and there there was there was a lot of tension in the church, uh, just like in in every other part of society. Um, and so, as you as you said, there is there have been things written about. Um, about, I would say, not the collapse of the synodal system, but the reform of the synodal system, um, because the, the bishops were not happy with it either. Uh, they didn't like the fact that you have this office of the over procurator that's kind of supervising them. Uh, the bishops were not really allowed to meet outside of the synod. You, you, you very rarely had a council of bishops that was independent of the synod. Uh, so they really wanted to decouple the church from the state, and establish an independent patriarchate once again. So the question is, what does what the pastoral movement have to do with that? What, what is the contribution of the parish clergy to that? So um, what I hope my book highlights is the importance of this pastoral movement in uh, mobilizing a popular mandate for that church reform in 1917. So in that year, there were nine bishops who were elected to their diocesan sees by these dioceses of clergy and laity. And that included Tikhon, who, before he became patriarch, was elected metropolitan of Moscow to replace uh, the, the guy who came, uh, who came before him, who was uh, appointed by Rasputin and was very unpopular. So that had never happened before in the history of of the Russian church, is that you have these popular elections of bishops. Um, But as I mentioned, uh, these congresses were very cautious in avoiding a direct violation of canon law. So they asked the synod, they asked the bishops to approve these elections. They ultimately deferred to the apostolic authority, of the of the bishops to say, okay, we we want this new bishop. We want Tikhon to be the uh, the new Metropolitan of Moscow, and so and they gave the the synod the opportunity to um, uh, to assert its authority and retain its authority. And in, in a couple of cases, actually, um, these elections were rejected uh, because the people who were elected were not bis- were not bishops. They were. In one case, it was a layman, in one case, it was a monk. And so the synod said, no, no, only, only bishops, only people holding the rank of bishop can become a bishop uh, in, as a result of these elections. And so, so that, as I said, organized this popular mandate. There was also um, this so called All Russian Congress of Clergy and Laity. So, this, this is an organization or a, uh, a representative body that met in Moscow ahead of the Sabor. Okay, so very well known is the, the church Sabor, or the local church council of 1917 and 18. And this is the body that restored the Russian Patriarchate. It was a, an extremely important council. And they had been preparing for it for for years and years uh, before it finally met. It it addressed all all aspects of church life. Um, But before the Sabor convened in Moscow, there was this smaller organization, the smaller representative body, the All-Russian Congress of Clergy and Laity. And the representatives to that body had been elected by the, on the, at the diocesan level, by these sort of revolutionary bodies of clergy and laity that were ousting unpopular bishops. So they sent all sent representatives to Moscow. And this, this body of clergy and laity, there were very few bishops, there were a few, but this was really a show of force by the lower clergy and by the laity, which again avoided directly challenging the leadership of the episcopate. And it was attended by some of these prominent um orthodox intellectuals like the philosopher Sergei Bulgakov, uh the prince Trubetskoy, um Alexander Popkov, I think I mentioned earlier, some of these um, these really prominent church intellectuals along with along with all of these dissident um priests and they they called for greater um participation in the in the process of church reform. Um, and, and they got it, in fact, and I think that they influenced the proceedings of the Sabor that was to follow, this organization of the whole church. Uh, they ensured, for example, that, that parish clergy and laity would, would participate in the Sabor as voting members. Okay, so once that, once that Congress of Clergy and Laity in Moscow uh, concluded its business, some of its leading members, including its uh, chairperson, chairman, were invited to, uh, to help organize the main Sabor. So originally, if you look back at, at the preparations for this Sabor back in uh, 1905, 1906, a lot of the bishops said, no, this is going to be an organization of the episcopate, and the and the laity and the lower clergy can be there as consultants, but they are not going to have a vote. Um, because of this, as I say, as I call it, a show of force by the parish clergy and laity, that sabor became much more of a democratic organization, and and I believe that that gave the 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 church a, uh, as I said, a popular mandate, and it it. Strengthened it. I think it it, it helped it to uh, survive, at least the early years of Soviet persecution. So I hope that that's one thing that that the church that the that the book highlights.
1: Um, Yeah, I was I was very convinced. It's a it's a really serious question as to why the church doesn't disappear, Um, and these clerical networks and and all this lay participation it helps goes a long way to help explaining why. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll just just
2: add a little bit there. So, in in terms of the the, the pastoral movement, the mutual aid and the charitable associations um, that that I discuss as responding to the humanitarian crises of the late nineteenth or early twentieth century, uh, those organizations really become political. Uh, that's that's why the parish clergy are able to. Uh, to organize themselves politically and assert their voice in the church, and to help the laity to assert their voice uh, in the church at that moment of reform in 1917, because they already have the networks in place, they are already very competent at, at organizing congresses and associations and so forth, uh, and and sending and they're able to send those those delegates.
1: Uh, to Moscow ahead of the Sabor. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, Thank you very much, um, Daniel. That's, I'm really, I've learned a lot in the last hour. Um, so congratulations on such an interesting book. Thanks very much, Roland. It's great to talk to you.